Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Angie Johnston. Uh, She's an assistant professor at the Boston College, uh, part of the Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences. And she studies dogs and what they're thinking, which sounds really, really interesting. So, Angie, thanks for coming. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about your research in your own words. So what I look for whenever I'm looking at dogs is two things. One, what can dogs tell us about dogs? And two, what can dogs tell us about humans? So one thing we know about dogs is that they're really similar to humans, even more so than our closest primate relatives in a lot of ways. And so what we can do is we can learn about what dogs are thinking by testing them in studies. And then we can also compare them to humans, specifically human children, to see what parts of our own human psychology might be unique and what parts do we share with our best friend. Yeah, do you think that's a, um, I think a good shorthand rule that you know, dogs have the mentality of like a, you know, a, four, a four or five-year-old kid, or is it <laughs> much more uh, deep than that? It's a bit more complex than that. Uh, it, it depends on what we're looking at. Sometimes dogs don't even do things that young infants do. And sometimes they do things that even old, older children would be able to do. So it kind of depends on what you're looking at. But what we generally do is we generally compare them to either toddlers or four to five-year-old children. And at least the way that they like to play in our studies is similar to four to five-year-olds. Oh, so, yeah, what are some, um, I don't know, what's some experimentation you've done that really gave you a surprising result and showed you that dogs may be thinking in a way that we just, maybe we can't even, we can only partially comprehend or just didn't even realize? Like, what sticks out of you from what you've researched so far? Well, I think my favorite study was a study looking at whether dogs do something we call over-imitation. So this is something that we know young children do, where if you show them how to do something like solve a puzzle and you do silly, unnecessary steps, children will copy all of the steps, even if they know that they're silly. And we wanted to see if dogs would do this too, because dogs are very sensitive to what we teach them also. And, you know, dogs are also want to follow what we tell them in a lot of cases. But in our study, the dogs, in a sense, outsmarted the children. And although children will over-imitate the dogs would just figure out, hey, I figured out how this box works. I can do it this way instead of what you told me, and I'm going to get the treat much faster. So that was something that was surprising to us. And we were thinking, well, why would it be the case that dogs would seem smarter than children? That just doesn't make a lot of sense. But when we thought about it more, we realized that if you think about all of our complex human culture, you know, we have things like fire building and things like washing our hands that we may not know why they're necessary steps because you can't see the germs. You don't know that the fire tool starter to start the fire is generating friction by striking over and over and over and over again. We have all these complex cultural tools that it might be beneficial for children to just trust us on that. And so it may be that the dogs aren't as smart as we thought they were. Well, something just occurred to me, um, when you're testing dogs, do you test them alone or um, 
do you ever preserve their pack? You know, if they're in a pack mm -hmm. with uh, a couple of people or a few other dogs, you know, there's a hierarchy, it looks like. So, you know, when you do these cognition tests, do you test the alpha dog or do you test the subservient one? And do they act differently when the alpha dog's there or their, their master's there? I mean, has there been much experimentation like that? There's a, that's a great question. So we typically do one dog at a time with their owner. And so we don't look as much in a lot of my work at the hierarchy and dominance, but there's been some really fascinating work that's been done looking at that. One study in particular coming out of a group that does research in Hungary found that if you have a dog that's dominant and a dog that's subordinate, the dogs that are subordinate are actually more likely to learn from other dogs than the dominant dogs are. And they think that's because the dominant dogs are just not paying attention to the other dogs. Really? Yeah. Do they, do they learn from humans then, preferentially, or are they just... Uh... Oh, yeah. Definitely both. The hierarchy doesn't seem to matter for how they learn from humans, but it matters for how they learn from other dogs. So yeah, like we have a, a new dog that we got about a year ago. She was a puppy, and you know, we're convinced that she learned all her tricks from the, the dominant one. You know, he, he took her under his wing and he taught her everything. And now she does what he does you know, with a twist. Well, it sounds like that's totally possible from this study that I know about. What, oh, is, what sort of things has the dominant one taught the subordinate one? Well, it started with my daughter. She taught the dominant one how to climb up on the lazy boy and sit there. So now at the time <laughs> I have to kick him off there if I want to sit there. He just looks at me, you know. And then, uh, the, you know, the other one had never gone up on them. And now she goes up on them, too. And it's like, oh, my God. You know? That's fascinating, especially because it started with a human. So it's an interesting chain of learning from human to dominant to subordinate. Yeah. And then there's some stuff, too, that I, it's funny. It depends on the personality. Like this, this youngest one, her name is Goji. She's learned how to open a certain door uh, to get to one part of the house. You know, it's like those handle doors, not the round ones, but like the you know, the straight lever arm. So she'll push down on that and get through the door and the other ones just don't seem to care. So there's some independent learning too from watching us, I guess. Yeah. And one thing, and another aspect of my studies that I haven't talked about yet is we also compare dogs to their non-domesticated relatives in Australia, the Australian dingo. And we've been finding that although the dogs are really ready to learn from humans, they're not nearly as good at the, as the dingoes at independent problem solving. So we have these studies where we have puzzle boxes that take three different steps to solve. So there's a puzzle, if you can imagine it, that has a lever that pushes the treat down a slide. And then the slide comes to a gate that needs a rope to pull a gate open. And then it goes under a container that needs to be flipped over. And when we did this in the lab with owners, they looked at us like we were crazy. They thought, they said, you, I can't believe you think that my dog has any hope of solving this puzzle. And none of the dogs solved it. Huh. But the dingoes, they were all very good at solving it. And they solved it much, pretty quickly in some cases. And so we think what might have happened is domestication may have come at a little bit of a cost. Whereas dogs have become good at learning from us, they've lost a little bit of that independent problem solving. Yeah, it makes total sense. And when you talked about the dominant dog, not learning from the other dogs below them. It sounds like people, you know, they maybe they get into a high position. They think they know everything. They're arrogant and they, mm. they don't think they can learn from other people that they consider beneath them. So maybe dogs are the same way and necessity is the mother of invention, like for the dingoes. That's why they're, they're more creative, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely have that need to be creative given their environment.
if you literally put yourself in the mind of a dog, what do you think that they're thinking about? Are they just, I mean, I don't know. Do they, do they sit there and think, or they just react in the moment to, to stimuli and to, you know, it's mostly instinct. Like, what do you think is the mindset of a dog if it has one? I think that they're mainly drawn towards things. So I think that they love being near humans, at least pet dogs do. And so I think that there are things that draw them towards humans. So for instance, there's this research that shows that when dogs and humans make eye contact, oxytocin, which is also called the quote, love hormone, is released in both dogs and humans. Really? Yes. <laughs> And so it seems like dogs are getting something out of being near us. And when we pet them, the same hormone is often released. And so I think that they, a lot of their world is, is similar to our world where we're going around and different things happen and different hormones are released and we have experiences and they're positive sometimes or negative sometimes. And that changes the way we interact in the future. And I think dogs are much the same. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, I know it's funny. They, they have these expressions sometimes and I know people read into them and think that they're, they look very sad or they're looking, I don't know, they just, they have very, very expressive faces, but I don't think that maps to what they're really feeling. You know, they have like different mapping and stuff. It's, it's weird. Yeah. And that's one thing that's tricky about getting inside of a dog's mind. Even when we do our experiments, we have to be really careful because a lot of what dogs have evolved to do over domestication is make us think that they're feeling things that they may not be feeling. A really good example of this is the guilty look, um, where essentially we, we found that when dogs give this guilty look, it may not be so much that they understand they've done something wrong, like, oh, you came home and they ripped up some newspapers while you were gone. It may not be that they're understanding they did something wrong and, and feeling remorse. It may be that they've learned this is an appeasement behavior. It makes a lot of sense when you think over the course of domestication. If you want to be living in someone's household, it's beneficial to you if the person you're living with thinks that you're showing remorse, even if you actually may not have the capacity for that. Oh, okay. So they may just they may just say, "Oh, if I if I look look this way, then they'll they'll leave me alone." Leave me alone. Go easy on me. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Interesting. You know, I asked. I know they don't answer, but I asked my dogs, "How come you never pet me?" but they i I guess they they express love by they'll lick you you know or they'll lean against you or i just wonder you know do dogs you know how much do they care about people and how much do they just see them as like oh well you know they give me food and a place to hang out so i'll hang out with them yeah well actually um this has been a big a big question of interest since the very beginning of research on dogs people have wondered do dogs really love us and so far all of the different ways are able to measure it with hormones. Like I mentioned before, they do seem to release that oxytocin when you're in close contact with them or making eye contact. But also not just that, um, brain scan studies have shown that dogs show similar patterns of what you might expect as love. They show reward response when they're near their loved owner. And also there's this, these studies that can look at whether dogs are attached to humans or not that compare humans and dogs to humans and children. And what they do is they see how excited is the dog to see you as their owner versus a stranger after being separated for a period of time. And in general, children are more excited to see their parent than they are to see a stranger. And we see this with pet dogs also. And something really interesting is that 
this, these different traits of love, some of them don't seem to show up in wolves. So wolves don't show, even if they're kept as pets, don't show this oxytocin response. And they also don't seem to be more attached to their owner than a stranger. So essentially a wolf that's kept as a pet doesn't seem any more excited to see their owner after being separated from them than if just a random stranger. So I think they have grown to love us over domestication, at least with the best evidence we have right now. But it's really hard to test that, right? Like it's really, even with humans, the only way you can know is by someone reporting that they love someone. You don't know that if it's true or not. Well, I noticed, you know, I have kids and the dogs seem to definitely know who a kid is. They know that they're children and they should be more gentle with them and careful with them and everything. It seems like, you know, again, I haven't done formal experimentation, but it definitely seems that way to me that they know, okay, my youngest is a kid and they let, you know, they let her like squish them and mush them more and they don't seem to complain. And I tell her they're living creatures, leave them. And she goes, they love it and they seem to be okay with it. And, you know, if I do that to them, they, they don't like it, they get mad. You know? Yeah, there's not been as much work that's been done on that. But again, I think if you're going to be in a human environment, you better not be hurting children. That's a guaranteed way that you get taken out of the pack, the human pack, I mean. So, yeah, I think that it, I've, I've noticed that anecdotally as well, but it's something that I think deserves a lot more research attention. We just don't know much about that yet. Hey, what about a vocabulary recognition? Do you, do you think it's part tonal and also the words themselves or like, you know, what's the study has been in that area? Um, so the studies in that area have mostly been looking at specific special dogs. So dogs that are very heavily trained. But it seems like they do understand them as words and they can have a vocabulary that's quite high. Some dogs even have over 2,000 word vocabularies. And of course, when I say that's quite high, that's actually very low even for a young child. But what we know is that they can learn words and the way that they can learn words is actually very special because they do a process that we call fast mapping. And so this is where if I were to have a dog that say knew the words for ball, bear, and dragon, and then I asked the dog, I put the ball, bear, and the dragon in a toy they've never seen before. And I say, bring me the blicket. The dog knows to bring me the new toy that they don't already know the word for. <laughs> and not just that, if I put that toy with some other toys later on and I ask for the blicket again, they'll remember that was called the blicket. And now when I say dogs, that's, I know, isn't that amazing? That's only a couple of dogs have been shown to do that. And so yeah. that suggests it's not just tonal, it's, it is something about the words. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Has anyone ever tested, like, you know, when people baby talk to their dogs? I, I can't help it. I do it sometimes, and they usually just ignore it. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, baby talk has been hugely studied. So one, the first thing that's really cool is that we're motivated to use baby talk with dogs. And this is something that we think is because we see dogs a lot like we see our own children or infants. And so the fact we're motivated to make this talk to dogs is interesting because people may not use this baby talk as often with other non-dog animals. But the thing that we know is that this is the very cues that make it so that dogs and babies know we're trying to teach them something. And so, for example, in those over-imitation studies I showed you, it's really important that we get the dog's attention. And the way dogs, we get their attention is using the baby talk. 
And so quite a bit of work has shown that dogs are more likely to learn from you when you use the baby talk. So although it seems like they're not listening, my bet is that they are. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Very, very interesting. What questions are you trying to answer that, I don't know, you just, you feel like you have to answer them, but they're very difficult so far, but you think they'll, they'll shed light on you know, the dog's mind? Like, what are you working on now? Well, right now, our biggest challenge is during a time of COVID, how do we test dogs? But we're excited because we're starting to develop ways of working with owners on Zoom to do studies at home. And so there's been some studies before that have been challenging because we have to, if we're trying to do them in the lab, sometimes dogs are not as familiar with the lab setting, so they'll act a little bit differently. So now what we're doing is we're trying some of our studies on Zoom in the dog's home. And so one study you might remember, have you heard about the What the Fluff Challenge? No. So the What the Fluff Challenge was this series of videos that went viral on TikTok and other mediums a year or so ago, where the owner would hold up a blanket and play peekaboo with the dog. And then when they dropped the blanket, the owner would disappear. And of course, not all these owners are magicians. What they're doing is they're running sideways into a door that the dog isn't paying attention to. And so the dog in these cases often look very surprised, right? Like if I showed you a magic trick like that, you would be surprised too. And so what we're wanting to do is start to really figure out how do we measure emotions in dogs? And so we're working with those videos, the what the fluff videos, to see if we can measure what does surprise look like on a dog because we can't use the same, we can't use the same facial features that we would use for humans. So that's one study that we're doing. And we're also curious though, how um, dogs communicate with their owners. And so we're doing a study where, you know, the ball rolls under the couch yep. and then the dog looks at you. Oh, I know. They as if cry. to say, they, they... get me that ball. So we're working on a series of studies that are in the natural habitat, the dog's home, to see what do dogs do and how are they communicating? So a lot of the questions that we're asking now during COVID are taking a step back and trying to really see what does the dog's behavior look like when they're communicating? What does the dog's behavior look like when they're surprised? And really start to get a better coding scheme of how to even measure the dog's behavior. Well, you know what might be factors I thought of when you mentioned Zoom? Um, you know, if I come into a lab and you're the person running the lab, the dog may perceive that I perceive you as an authority. Mm -hmm. So that may change how the dog relates to me and it may perform very differently, you know? Mm -hmm. And it also may be distracted or taking into account you and your smell and your presence and all that when otherwise it wouldn't. So like the Zoom environment in a way, if you can get people to do it right, it'll probably be a more pure, less variable environment. And they're in their home too. So like there's not that new information either. So I bet you you'll get like a lot more clear results or different results from all those factors. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. And so we're, we're definitely trying to make lemonade out of lemons with the with COVID, but that's my hope is that like, like exactly like you're saying that having it just be the simple interaction between them and their owner and their home will let us kind of see more directly into their behavior without these other elements about authority and smell and things like and novelty kind of muddying the waters a little bit. What about, um, you know, dog to dog communication? Like I notice, I don't know, sometimes I don't know how they'll know to signal each other to play or to, you know, like Recently, we just got them bones, and 
one will lay there and even if the other dogs aren't looking at them, she'll growl and then, you know, she's like overprotective of this bone. Sometimes the dog will, will from across the room start growling back at her or not. And, yeah, they're very sensitive to each other's body language and each other's sounds. There's some studies that have shown that even if you just play playbacks of dogs that they've never met before, they'll react, they'll sort of catch the emotion in a way. And so they know to avoid growling dogs. And so it makes sense. If you don't want someone to come near your bone, growl and they'll stay away. And playing the play bow is a huge tool that dogs use and it's something that wolves use as well, which is basically this idea that you are in a situation where if it were misinterpreted, you might think that someone's trying to kill you, right? Like playing can get rough sometimes, but there are these play bows and there's also the way the motion is. So if the motion's very fluid, it's a playing scenario, whereas the dogs are more rigid then that reads as aggression or uncertainty. And so... I go by sound. I can hear... I can tell, like, the dog's level of agitation by the sound. I, mm-hmm. I can just... It's hard to describe, but I can hear if they're just fighting, and then I can hear if it gets nasty, which is rare, but it's, I can hear I the difference. I know what you mean, yeah. When my dogs are playing outside, too, I can... I'll listen, and I can tell, like, okay, and I know to yell out the window, you know, like, Scout, stop, calm down. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It... It definitely, it's definitely like a a symphony where there's just, there's the behavior, there's the sound, and it's all sort of coming at the same time. And dogs are very good at picking up on this. And again, this is something that they have kept over from wolves because wolves actually are are better than dogs at navigating this sort of stuff because dogs are, so one place that dogs live naturally is human homes, but they also live feral, right? So there are feral dogs. And these dogs don't live in human homes, but the way they generally eat is they scavenge. And so they live pretty independently and they don't need to hunt in a pack like a wolf. For wolves to get their food, they work together, right? To take down a deer or something like that. And so it seems like this is carried over and wolves now are better at reading each other's cues and navigating cooperation. So there's actually been some studies, again, out of Hungary, showing that when they have these wolves that live in packs and dogs that live in packs, pack dogs do not cooperate well because they end up in fights, whereas wolves can cooperate. So it seems like dogs, compared to wolves, have maybe lost a little bit of their ability to navigate some of these communicative cues. Well, they're not a different species because they can interbreed, but it sounds like they're very different, maybe so different that mm-hmm. you just consider them a different organism altogether. Exactly. Yeah. So technically they are the same species and, and technically dingoes are the same species. But when we look at them behaviorally, all three of these animals are very different and their environments are very different as well. Huh. well I was also going to tell you when um, I know, it's, you know, I shouldn't, but I know how to like annoy my dogs too. Sometimes... <laughs> If I annoy them, the sounds they make, if I just emulate those sounds and I pet them like too fast or too hard, they get annoyed. You know, like my one dog goes, ah. so I, when I do that to it and I pet it in a certain spot, it gets riled up more and more ah, and just comes off the couch in annoyance and like runs away, you know. So it's <laughs> they do seem to respond like verbally to certain things. And I don't know. It's just funny when you copy them in certain ways, they, they seem to recognize it somehow. Oh, that's cool. There's definitely, I definitely have noticed that as well. I was younger, I would follow my dog around and and do everything that she did. 
and yeah, she didn't much appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. They don't sometimes when you do what they do, they don't like it. You know, <laughs> hmm. that's interesting. I feel yeah. like there might be a study there. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just funny. I noticed that two of my dogs, if I pet them and I don't say anything, it's fine. But if I pet them and I talk to them, they also don't like that either. It somehow, I guess, ruins the petting. You know, and then, <laughs> yeah, be quiet. Let me enjoy my petting. Yeah, and then, you know, they, they'll, if I'm sitting there, they'll come and they'll, it's not their butt, but I call it that, but it's just their, you know, right right near their hind legs. That's where all dogs love to seem to be pet, mm-hmm. you know, like on their lower back. And I, you know, I call it like paralyzing their butt. You'll, you'll scratch on one side and the leg will give out. And you scratch oh, on the right. other side, the other leg will give out. And, but they'll maneuver too. Like they'll come and they'll turn and curl themselves so that you pet that part of them. Or if I pet their head, two of mine don't like that. They rather the back part. So they'll, they'll move so that I can pet the back part instead. They don't want me to pet the head. You know? Yeah. They're just funny things I noticed, you know, it's just. And that's the fun thing too, is, you know, there's a lot of what I'm doing is I'm trying to find what are the commonalities across dogs, but there's also just so many individual differences. And that's something that I think is a next, a next area that we need to examine as a field, which is what is the variation look like? And how does this compare between dingoes and wolves? Um, Monique Goodell, who's a professor at in Oregon, talks about this as being something that's really important to think about because if we're thinking about how these have evolved, you'd expect the variation to be changing over time. Yeah, what, that's what I was going to ask you amongst dogs. You know, I know supposedly bloodhounds are really good at smelling and tracking. Like, how much variation have you seen in ability amongst dog breeds? And what are some examples? Um, so I haven't looked personally at dog breeds, but the main breed that we see lots of differences with are ancient breeds. So these are dogs like Shiba Inus, Alaskan Malamutes, Chow Chows, Sharpays, Basinjis, that, that sort of dog. And as a group, they look much more wolf-like and dingo-like than more modern dog breeds. And so these are breeds that were domesticated a, long, a much longer time ago. And so, for instance, in studies that look at eye contact, your typical modern breed pet dog, like a golden retriever, will make eye contact with a human for a long period of time if they're just in a room with a human. But these other dogs, they're not as likely to do that. And so it's kind of cool that we're seeing the thumbprint of this more ancient domestication on these breeds. And so that's the main breed that comes out to be different. The other ones, we just don't know enough yet. It's the thing is, studying dogs, we haven't been studying them for very long. It's only been about 20 years. So there's just a lot more to learn. But I think breed differences are definitely something that we should start looking at more um, in the future. Well, when you say domesticated a long time ago versus not so long, like how long a time period are we talking about? Or I guess um, a lot of breeds didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. About 2,000 years ago would be when some of the oldest breeds were domesticated, maybe even longer. Um, more modern breeds, some of the modern breeds are only a hundred years old. Yeah, I guess a lot of them have just been, I mean, some of them have been, when when was there an explosion of new dog breeds? I think there was about a hundred years ago, whenever the kennel clubs started to become really popular and show dogs became a thing, that was when things really started to pick up. But I don't know as much, now I'm curious, I want to learn more about that, but that's a little bit outside of my expertise well it might it might be another hidden variable like if you i'm picturing a chart on the wall a really big one you know with time on the x-axis and then dog breeds that appear throughout time and that might tell you something very different 
like you know in all your experimentation you control for breed for age or for other factors like i wonder how much i guess breed probably makes a huge difference if you, you know think about it like some of the experimentation you've done i don't know if you've controlled for it but you know what if you uh, did some stuff on ancient breeds and you get like a totally different result because they're much more like wolves, let's say, or much less like wolves. Yeah, I like the idea of treating the ancient breeds more as a continuous variable that, you know, it's maybe not just ancient breeds. It could be that it's how ancient is the breed. And I'm not sure. No one's looked at that. Are there any um, new breeds that have different characteristics than we've ever seen before? Like, has you know, has anyone bred a dog that just has, um, I don't know, some super ability that they've never had before? Not that I know of, but that would be cool. Yeah, it's too bad. <laughs> yeah, there's not a super dog that I can think of. I know that they've done, there's a lot of people that are breeding dogs right now for scent work and for service work. And I know that a lot of the service work seems to work best with um, the one of the dogs I know about with a lot of lab, Labrador retrievers and golden retrievers and the cross between the Labradors and the golden retrievers. But I don't know that I'd call that a new breed. Well, I guess some real new ones are like what golden doodles and. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you want to, if cuteness counts as a factor, there's definitely some really cute new breeds, but I don't know much about. Um, I don't think that much has been done to examine their sort of the way they think and the way they learn. Yeah, I guess there's a lot that could be done. I mean, if you could, if it would, you know, if the dogs would kill each other, or if you bred a very new, unusual breed with a wolf, what would happen? You know, just a oh gosh, yeah. something in the middle, or like, what if someone is able to breed like a a pug with a, a wolf somehow? I don't know. You know yeah, there's really, there really are, divergent ones. There are people that study wolf dog hybrids, but I think that work hasn't. The results haven't come out yet. But they typically breed them with like Alaskan Malamutes or dogs like that, not a pug. But <sighs> that would be interesting. Has anyone tried to breed like a dingo and a wolf to see what the what happens, um, or is it not that I know of the wolves. So the dingoes are in Australia and the wolves are not in Australia. So I think that doesn't happen as much, but I don't, someone would have to really try to make that happen. Like a zoo could maybe make that happen, but yeah, that hasn't been done yet. There's definitely dingo dog hybrids and that would be an interesting population to study as well. Yeah. Are there any other, so there's wolves, dingoes, regular dogs, and then New Guinea you know, dogs. What are they? New Guinea singing dogs. They're very closely related to dingoes and they're, they live in Papua New Guinea. Those would be the main ones. The other are ones they, are actually very distantly, like African wild dogs are very distantly related. They're are not they still dogs. breedable or like are hyenas I, breedable or no? I don't think, I don't know. I don't think they are, but I'm not sure. What do these singing dogs do? Do they just howl and it sounds like singing? They have a they very, sing? it's... <laughs> It's kind of a very, I would recommend looking it up. <laughs> it's, it's kind of more of a shriek. Oh, well, that's not very pleasant. It's <laughs> not pleasant. It's just interesting. Yeah. But they're not doing it out of distress. They do it as communication. No, no. They just do it as communication. Yeah. The dingoes, on the other hand, have beautiful chorus howls that they do. Um, the sanctuary that I work at, when I work, you, the way I wake up in the morning when I work there is at 6 a.m. or whenever the sun comes up all 40 dingoes, they start howling and they each howl at a different pitch. Really? So it sounds like a chorus singing. Yeah, they do that in the morning and they do that when they see kangaroos and they do it when they're getting their food. Oh, wow. They sing yeah. for their supper. Huh. They sing for their supper, yes. Weird. Are there any um, 
any dog behaviors that you've seen that you don't understand at all? Hmm. Let me think. Like I've seen one, like, I guess myself and the person that told me, like, they call it corn cobbing. The dog will like, they're not biting, but they're like, hey, 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 like they're eating corn <laughs> off a cob and they do it on the necks of a dog that will lay there and just let them do it. So it's, I don't know. It's, it looks like it might be grooming, but maybe it's just a, a display of dominance. I don't know. It's just very weird, but it looks like that's what they're doing is corn copying the other dog. You know? Yeah. One thing I've wondered about is, you know, the tippy taps that dogs do sometimes, the tap, tap, taps what with do you their mean? front paws. They go like tap, 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 tap with their front paws. Some dogs do this when they're excited, I think. Oh, My dog huh. does this a lot, which is why I'm wondering. And I wonder how much that's them communicating with me or how much he's just excited and that's what his little body does. Yeah. So are there any other behaviors that are widespread that no one has studied or no one understands? I think a lot, a lot of things that we don't understand are about dogs' emotions. And so how much we don't understand their expressions a lot of times, or if we think we do, sometimes we're wrong. And so I think because every time we seem to study an expression, it turns out we were wrong about what it meant. I'd say that's something that we really don't know what, how to read their emotions and how to not overinterpret their emotions. Yeah, I notice when they get angry, they get like this kind of whale eye. They look sideways and their face pulls back and they, it looks almost as like they're scared, but it's like a fixed scared look. And it's just, you know, again, their eyes like bulge out a little bit and they look mm-hmm. sideways at you and they, not at me, but the other dogs. And then you can tell they're agitated, you know? Yeah. And I think that's an interesting too, interesting thing too, to think about, which is, how much are these different when they're interacting with other dogs versus interacting with humans? And I was going to say also that there's actually this promising new work that's called FACTS, Dogs, Dog FACTS, which is it's called Facial Action Coding Scheme. And they're trying to look muscle, tiny muscle by tiny muscle to plot the dog's facial expressions. And yeah, they did that with humans. There was like uh, yeah. Paul Ekman. I mean, that's yeah. where they figured out micro-expressions. Has anyone seen micro-expressions in dogs? Well, they're starting to look for that because they've just now validated the muscle coding system, so the facial coding system. And one thing they found, probably the coolest result so far, is that there's this muscle that dogs use to make when they make those puppy dog eyes, and okay. that muscle is not seen in wolves. So it seems like over domestication, dogs have actually developed the muscle, the tiny little muscle that makes them make the puppy dog eyes. And wolves just don't have that muscle. Oh, wow. Yeah. How long do uh, the scientists think people have, you know, when when were dogs first domesticated? How long have they been around people? There's a bit of a debate, but definitely at least 14,000 years. So 14,000 years is the date of a burial site that they've found that had a puppy and a child buried together and the puppy had clearly been injured and they were caring for it. And so we know that dogs were living with people at least by that point, but possibly up to 50,000 years ago. Wow. Yeah. The geneticists are, um, it's hard because, you know, it's, it's always guesswork. And so the geneticists don't always agree on what techniques to use. And every time they find a new fossil record, they, usually have a little bit of an update to the story. Well, I would think that the uh, the current species that dogs are now, did that predate humans becoming their current species? Or, you know, there are fossils that show that uh, there was any domesticated form of dog, you know, genetically before uh, 
there was any known association with people? Well, I think that's a that's a challenging question, but I I think that the dogs came after people, like the people domesticated the dogs. So the first thing that people domesticated. Do you think that they may have interacted first with wolves and just by association, they, the dogs slowly changed and changed and changed? I think so. So I think that the last common ancestor between dogs and wolves, I think was very wolf-like, but that some of those wolves were more comfortable around humans. And so they sort of filtered their way into human camps. And then they started to, over time, become more and more and more tame. And so I think that then humans took those more tame animals. They weren't quite wolves. They weren't quite dogs. They took that tame animal and then domesticated it themselves through breeding. Hmm, okay. And then um, in dogs, what um, like of them seems the most nuanced where it's like a language? Is it body language? Is it barking? Is it vocalizations in general or facial expressions? Like, you know, when you look at their communication, which one is the most rich so far that we can see? I think it's hard because right now we know a lot more about their body language, but that's partly because we're a much more visual species ourselves. So I'd say we know the most right now about their visual communication, but that's often because as humans, we go first to the visual. What we don't know much about at all that might be the most important is their smell. So we just, because mm. we're not a species that is very adept at smelling, we don't think about that. And it's hard to even know how to study it, right? It's hard to study something that you can't perceive yourself. So I think that I, my hunch would be smell is a very important tool they're using and we just have no idea how they're doing it so their bodies could be emitting you know all kinds of uh not pheromones but just you know Absolutely. aromatic aromatic compounds and then they're near enough they smell that and they go wait a minute and they absolutely how the emotional state how would you study that i mean would you i guess sample the air in a room well the, yeah the i think that's area? the way so there's this um, researcher at texas tech nathaniel hall who's created these really interesting smell machines that basically can detect lots of different scents and at small and how strong they are. And so I think you'd have to use something, a machine that's designed to detect a lot of different scents and just see what's there. But I think the thing that's hard is if you don't know what type of smell you're looking for, it can be hard to detect it. Yeah, that's true. Huh. wonder if you could, you know, I don't know, I guess take an air sample and, and uh, try to see everything that's in there. You know, do yeah. some sort of interferometry and see. <laughs> now that you say that, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea. I think that's a, I think it's a really cool idea, but definitely for someone. I mean, also, I wonder if there's a way to have the dogs do it for us. Cause we often have the dogs do our scent work for us, like smelling different things like, you know, cancer, you know, different other sorts of like narcotics or bombs. I wonder if there's well, a way to have the dogs do the work for us. Yeah, a lot of the smelling seems to be really up close, I guess, from what I see. Mm. So I, I guess distance, I guess dogs have this, what, this secondary nose, and they go, like they blow air and it stirs stuff up so they can smell even better. Yes. So I wonder how much of their smell is just localized to within a few inches of them. And then what's more distance smelling and what's used and how. Yeah. And so it might be that it's not a cue that they're using when they're in a play situation, but maybe in other situations. Yeah, I don't know. Do you know of anyone that um, is able to recreate literally what a dog experiences when it smells? You know, when it smells something like, I know it's a very, it's a very difficult question. Like, what is it like for us to smell something? Well, okay, you smell something, you know, it's good or bad, it's strong or weak, but directionality, 
I wonder if that's part of a dog's experience of smell. And like, what is it like to smell as a dog? Has anyone tried to emulate that smell? I know people have tried to have humans make the same behaviors as dogs. So get your nose close to the ground, sniff out, sniff in. I know people have tried to do that and have showed that in some cases, humans can smell similarly to dogs if they just try. But that only goes so far. So I don't think anyone's looked beyond that. Though I was on a walk with my dog in the woods over the long weekend. And I was thinking it would be cool if, you know, like artificial intelligence. I was thinking it'd be cool if there was an artificial canine intelligence, like if someone would try to design a robot that is basically experiencing the world like a dog. And then that might be a way that we could understand more what the mind of a dog is if we could see it through the lens of an artificial intelligence. Hmm, that's true. I, you might have to go one sense at a time, but yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it would be a very large project, but smell would be a big a big part of it. Well, I wonder if you could use a, um, a VR experience for people to, I guess, you know, if you mounted a camera on a dog's head and then you used a VR experience to recreate it, you know, from a dog's point of view, what it's seeing, you know, when it's called, when it looks around, what it's looking at, that may mm-hmm. be a start. That'd be a good start at least for their attention. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I would think the dog would orient towards whatever it's sensing. You know, if it hears something, the ear moves. If it sees something, the head moves. I would think also if it smells something, then the head has to move too in the direction of the gradient of the smell. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot to be tested still. Huh? There's a lot to be tested. Yeah. Well, very good. What What's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your research? And I don't know if you have any experiments going on with Zoom-based sessions, but how can they find out more about your work? Yes. So we have a website that people could go to. It's sites.bc.edu slash dog lab. And if you go there, you can find out more information about participating in our studies online and also see all of our publications. Okay. Very good. Well, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was fun. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.